take the Bible this morning for a scripture reading. We'll turn to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28. We'll just read the first uh, 14 verses. As I've been on my deputation meetings uh, throughout your province here, I've been to 40 of your 60 churches. In some of the churches, I've been reading this passage of scripture. And I read this passage of scripture in some of the churches because when I was in our deputation meetings in North America, and perhaps, pardon me, I should introduce myself before I start rambling. Uh, my name is Dave DeCanio, and I'm a minister, well, we use the term minister at large. Uh, it has nothing to do with the size or weight or anything like that. It just uh, means you travel around to the different uh, works on the mission field. That's how I was accepted into the free church back in 1993. As a student just coming out of the seminary at Bob Jones University and then going into our theological hall under Alan Cairns. And I suppose the term we would use is evangelist. That's the biblical term uh, where you just travel and labor in different places as the Lord leads, sort of like Paul the Apostle did in the book of Acts. So that's what I do. I go here or there uh, or yonder, as we say. Uh, but as I was traveling around our churches uh, preaching, uh, on pretty much the same subject in regard to missions I mentioned to one of the ministers the subject I would be preaching on and he asked me if I had a scripture reading to read I said no I have a text that I'm preaching on so he said that's fine and he got up and he read the first part of Deuteronomy 28 when he heard my theme I'm not going to tell you my theme but as you're reading along with me uh, as I read it aloud uh, you can think upon uh, the message here it applies to Israel but it has a broader application. I perhaps would think you could see your country uh, in uh, this passage here. Deuteronomy 28. And it shall come to pass if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all his commandments which I command thee this day. The Lord thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kind, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The Lord shall establish thee in holy people unto himself, as he hath sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God and walk in his ways. And all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of thee. And the Lord shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, and the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to give thee. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if 
that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them, and thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods uh, to serve them. And our reading there at that portion of Scripture. Well, I did sort of give an introduction to myself, so I won't do that again, uh, but it is good to be here, and as I say, to have an opportunity uh, to preach. Your minister asked me to come this morning and also to come this evening, and I don't think I've ever been at this church here before that I can remember. I was told it was an old schoolhouse, and uh, I was a little disappointed to hear that you were building a new building, possibly. I saw something out there. I like old buildings. Uh, there's history in them, if the walls could speak, but I'm sure this place here, back in times of even revival, because your country has been greatly blessed, I'm sure they learned something of the Bible, even in a schoolhouse, if it was built in the 1800s. It was a joy to be here and to get to meet you folks and uh, to have the opportunity to bring the Lord's Word to you. As I say, I'm going to bring to you today the message I've been preaching in all of our churches, well, 40 of your 60 churches here in Northern Ireland about uh, the way we do missions and how wise we need to be, especially as we labor and go into third world countries and the great contrast there is between our nation and nations around the world. We're going to turn to Proverbs 14 this morning, Proverbs 14. I see there's a clock right next to me, which is good, um, because I'm going to try very hard to pay attention to it. I think uh, Americans maybe have a reputation for being long-winded. We're not going out on the Internet, so I can say this. That might have something to do with Alan Cairns. Uh, he is the one that taught many of us in homiletics class, although he did tell us it was 30 minutes that we should stick to, and that was Dr. Cook. Uh, that advise that, and that's, that's right, if, you can, if you're able to do that. Uh, but some men are not able because they don't have the ability mentally to do so. Uh, Proverbs 14.34 is the text of Scripture that I've been speaking on, as I said, in a number of your churches here. And it's just the first phrase, really, where it says, Righteousness exalteth a nation. Righteousness exalteth a nation, uh, but sin is a reproach to any uh, people. Righteousness exalteth a nation. If you look at nations around the world, uh, there are those that have been raised up, exalted. This word here is the word that conveys the idea of being established. Sometimes we would use the term civilized. Righteousness, when it comes into a nation, it civilizes that nation. Uh, but then sin or unrighteousness when it comes into a nation and takes it over, it brings that nation into uh, reproach and great collapse. Oftentimes when you read this, you might think, well, here's a nation uh, that's righteous. Uh, it has many in it that are righteous, and other nations have those in it that are unrighteous predominantly. It's certainly true that Every nation has both righteous and unrighteous. But in some countries around the world, there has been a great influence of righteousness. And that is because of the gospel. Not just the gospel, because mostly every nation around the world has had the gospel preached. But the gospel coming in, a, in the form of what we call revival. And when revival comes to a nation that nation is completely transformed. 
And revival has not come to every nation around the world. There are those nations that have not been shaped and struck uh, by the gospel in the same way as others. Northern Ireland is one of those nations that have, has been shaped uh, completely by the gospel. Really, we could say Western civilization has been shaped by the gospel uh, greatly. This word here, righteousness, by the way, it is the word that's sometimes translated to justify. And the doctrine of justification is that doctrine that completely shaped all of Western civilization as it was preached in the 16th century. You remember, of course, in the day in Europe uh, and in Western civilization, really around the world, where the Bible was not translated into the language of the people. There were those Roman Catholic priests that came to know Christ, uh, men like Martin Luther in Germany, that saw the need to have the Bible in the language of the people. And so he translated into German and Calvin into French and men like Tyndale into English. And when men started to read the Bible, then they saw that they were not accepted before God by their own righteousness, their own obedience to the law, but what we've just been singing today, the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that completely transformed uh, the way they thought. Obviously, that's what the gospel does. The new birth awakens a man's heart, and that man's life then does change. When you think about the gospel, the gospel really deals with the law of God. The gospel uh, tells you that in order for you to get to heaven, you must have a perfect obedience to the law of God. And that's why salvation can never be by works, because you don't have a perfect obedience to the law of God. But salvation is by works, the works of another. Someone has to obey the law for you to be accepted before God. There has to be a perfect obedience to the law to have a righteous standing before God. And again, as I say, the Bible tells you and me that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And therefore, Titus 3, it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's by God's mercy that he saves us. Another has done that work of righteousness for us, that demand. And when the Bible tells us that men have that then standing before God where they're justified, it affects completely how they live. You remember what James said in James chapter 2, that a man might claim to be justified. He might, he might have a profession of faith. He might say he has faith in Christ. But if he doesn't have works following his faith, that saving faith is dead being alone. If he doesn't have sanctification following justification, that's the theological way to say it, that man's faith is dead being alone. A man's not saved by works, but any man that's saved by personal works, but any man that's truly saved always has good works in his life. There's always a transformation. There's always a change. When you read that phrase, righteousness exalts a nation, it's referring to the gospel. The doctrine of justification, that a man not saved by his own works, but the works, the perfect obedience of Christ, that man has acceptance with God. Because of that work of grace done in his heart, for him to be awakened, to see his need to be justified, and to lay hold of Christ, that work doesn't go away. John says his seed remains in him. That man then has a changed life. Although he's not saved by good works of his own, he always has good works that flow from that. And when a country has had revival, 
and a mass amount of people getting saved, it affects that nation's society. It affects them completely in regard to the Ten Commandments. Obviously, as I say, the Ten Commandments, we, the Ten Commandments, you must remember, or maybe you know this, uh, <clears throat> you know, the Ten Commandments are not, if I could say this reverently, they're not just ten sins that God made up. They're actually a written form of God's holy character, which is why you have to have a perfect righteousness to get to heaven. God can't just toss his law aside. He accepts nothing but perfect obedience, holiness. That's true. That's why you need Christ, because you don't have that obedience. But then when you're saved, that then flows out of you. That righteousness in you, that sanctification. Righteousness in Christ, justification, is what we call an imputed righteousness. But when you're saved, there is an infused righteousness in you that flows out of you. It is that work of sanctifying grace that actually changes your life. And when your nation has revival, uh, so many are saved, it transforms everything around you. You knew that from the 1859 revival. I mean, your courts shut down. That's a remarkable thing. The police officers were out of work, so they had to go to the churches and sing like a quartet. Four men would sing, and they would get an offering, and they would get their money that way. That, that happened here in 1859. In 1857, those things happened in America. That, that's the move of God in revival. And even though everybody didn't get saved, yet those that were saved, they had a sanctifying influence upon that society. Much like Christ said, you're the salt of the earth. You're, you're a preserving power. Though everybody doesn't get saved, yet there is a righteousness that stabilizes that nation. And really, when you look at nations that have not had the gospel in the same way, that have not had the mighty Protestant Reformation to shape their culture, those nations are, well, a reproach to a people. They are a collapsed society. And when you do missions, you are leaving a country that has been greatly blessed by the gospel, greatly shaped by the gospel, and you're preaching to people in a society that has not been shaped by the gospel. And so when people get saved out of a society that has not been shaped by the gospel like your society has, you have to deal with them very, very directly to help them understand that this is the way that you ought to live as a believer. And Paul actually does say that very, very clearly. You remember in Titus chapter 1, and by, by the way, I suppose that if you would have preached in the New Testament days, what I'm describing, leaving Ulster, leaving America, uh, and when I say Ulster, America, our countries are the same, you understand that, because it was your forefathers that founded America, the, the Ulster Scots, as you call them, we call them the Scots-Irish, but it's the same people, those that came from Scotland that had the gospel, those are the ones that wrote our Constitution. They, they understood that men were sinful when they wrote the U.S. Constitution. And, of course, uh, th that is why our Constitution in America is so stable, if I could put it that way. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that uh, the United States, the, the U.S. is one of the youngest countries in the world, and yet... It has one of the oldest constitutions. Why is that? It's because your forefathers wrote our constitution. They were believers, many of them, and they understood that men were sinful and therefore you had to put checks and balances in government. Uh, and that's why then you have a lasting document when most of the nations around the world, not all of them, but most of them have changed their constitutions. Most of them uh, have become very, very unstable. It reminds me of the scripture verse that says, uh, very, very plainly in Deuteronomy or, or, or Proverbs chapter uh, 28, 
where you read in verse 2, for the transgression of a land, many are the princes thereof, but by a man of understanding and knowledge, the state thereof shall be prolonged. I mean, that was Solomon that wrote that. Because of the transgression of a land. Righteousness, the gospel, exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And I, I say all that, and I come back to say what I was saying. When you then go in missions, it, it's, it, it would be much like, in the New Testament times, leaving Jerusalem and going to preach in Athens. There, there was a vast difference. Now, I understand the, the, the Jews, the Pharisees, I understand they were apostate. I understand Christ called them a generation of vipers. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, there was apostasy. There's apostasy that's crept into Ulster. I understand that. But there was still a difference because they had a history behind them of the gospel. Remember, uh, it was said by Paul in Romans chapter 3 that unto the Jews were committed the oracles of God. And because of that, they were a blessed people. Uh, their unfaithfulness did not make the faith of God of none effect. They had that blessing, and so you would have gone, and people would have known the God, Paul, the way he preached. He could speak to them about the prophecies of Christ in regard to the resurrection, and Peter could have done the same. He did that at Pentecost, and there was some foundation there, and there was great moves of God there continually. But when he was at, into Athens, it was a completely different environment. You know, when you think about the Ten Commandments as uh, you look at a society, uh, you do see the Ten Commandments in a society that has had the gospel. Now, I understand when you think about your government, and uh, there was a statement made this morning in the announcements, I'm not going to get into politics this morning, but the Bible does talk upon uh, affect politics. Your forefathers, the Ulster Scots, when they sought to come to America and set up a government, they, they understood uh, that they wanted the government dealing with the commandments, the Ten Commandments. They wanted it, but they did not want the government. This is probably, I'm not going to touch on some of the debates you're having in your country today, but I believe that what I'm about to say here, if this issue is understood biblically, it will solve much of the controversy today. Your forefathers did not want the government touching the first four commandments because that dealt with worship. That never meant they didn't want them dealing with the last six commandments. In other words, there was a wall. They believed in a wall of separation between the church and the state. Right now, that wasn't common. That Calvin did not see that. No, no, I understand that. The Ulster Scots did when they came to America. The, the, those Puritan dissenters when they left the Church of England. You, you might remember. Now, if I get off my subject, I've got to watch my clock. You remember when the Puritan dissenters? We call them in America the Pilgrims. They left the Church of England. They came to Holland. They came for religious freedom. When they were in Holland. The government in Holland, not the church, but the government ex accepted as a state doctrinal statement, biblical doctrinal statement, they accepted the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism as official state religion. Now, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism are very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and the shorter catechism. They're very solid. The Puritan dissenters, they would have agreed with those statements, but they said because the government said that these are our official statements, we can't live here anymore. And they left. After 12 years, they left Holland. In 1620, in 1621, they came to America. And that was their idea, that there would be a wall of separation. The government should not touch the first four commandments in regard to worship. I have no other gods before me. 
No graven images. Not take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That, that is the church. They believed in religious freedom. Even, even a man could come in and set up a false church as long as he didn't violate the last six commandments. You, you couldn't be a Satanist and, and murder people. You understand that. There, there was a difference. But the fact of the matter is you could be a, a, a Romanist or whatever and you could still preach the gospel. I mean, or rather, sorry, a false gospel. As long as I was still free to preach the true gospel and preach against that as a false gospel. That, that was what they believed. By the way, that, that is why you historically have feared Rome. In your country, you do not want to come under a Roman Catholic government because Rome believes the church and the state are one. So she gets in the majority and she starts telling you, you can't worship this way, you must worship that way. That's what Islam believes as well. They believe the church and the state are one. Therefore, when they get into political power, they also take control of the church. What flowed from the Protestant Reformation eventually through your country was freedom. Religious freedom in that regard. As long as I am allowed to preach against such and such as a false idea. As a false doctor. But my point is this. When it came to the last six commandments... The idea of separation of church and state never meant that you leave the last six commandments out of the laws of your society. It very much affected the civilizing of your nation. Now, I understand not the 10th commandment, that shalt not covet. Any criminal justice class you take, you, it, they'll tell you, even, even in a state school, you cannot criminalize people for what they think and believe because you, you can't read their mind. Now, in God's courts, yes. If a man looks and lusts, he's an adulterer. Yes, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Yes, because God has eyes as a flame of fire. He can see everything. And he judges you not just for your actions, but for your words. Every idle word that men shall speak will give an account there of the day of judgment. And for your thoughts, the Pharisees, if you hate, you're a murderer. But in the courts of the land, no, the 10th commandment, they never do. But the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th commandment, oh yes. A society that has been shaped by the gospel, absolutely. That society deals with the 5th commandment. The sixth commandment, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth. And that's one of the very strange things when you go into a part of the world that has not had the influences of the Protestant Reformation upon its society. The people that come to Christ, they think completely differently than you think and I think. And you need to be very, very wise. If I take, for example, the fifth commandment, what is the fifth commandment? What is it talking about? Well, it's, it's, it's couched in terms of, of, of a family structure. Honor your father and your mother. But it's not limited to that. We, of course, know that. You would only need to study the Reformed creeds and all to understand that it is very, very broad. The fifth commandment, it deals with authority structure. It, it deals with, uh, well, it, it deals with the family that if you're children, you honor your your parents, it also affects the parents. The parents are not to provoke their children to wrath. That's all involved there. But it also deals with the church. You're to obey Hebrews 13. Those that have the rule over you, you submit yourselves to them. They watch for your souls. Now, they're not popes. They, you're submitting under God and the authority of the word of God. The Bible's the standard of authority, same in the home. But it also affects the state as well. The fifth commandment is talking about in Romans 13:1. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. The powers that be, they are ordained of God. And you remember when Paul was sending Titus into Crete, and he warned Titus about the Cretans, about 
not their race, but their culture and the mindset of the people. He said, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to do every good work, because they were from a generally a lawless society. If I could just make this point, it's an interesting thought today. If you know anything about American foreign policy, even when George W. Bush was in power, and I was a supporter of George W. Bush, generally, I mean, he professed to be a believer, but he generally had good policies in regard to, you know, no partial birth abortion. He was careful about embryonic stem cell research because he did not want to be tampering with life. It was a creation of God and all that. But George W. Bush believed that you could export to foreign nations freedom. Now, I'm not for dictatorships. I am a believer in freedom. But he believed that you could go into nations like Iraq or Afghanistan and you could export democracy, letting every man vote. And you look at what it caused. Now, why was it? Well, if I look at the Ulster Scots and I think about your forefathers coming to America, they were very careful about the idea of democracy. They recognized that, yes, freedom flows from the Reformation and from the gospel. Yes, naturally. When a man is justified uh, freely by grace, it liberates that man. And that man then becomes a responsible man in society. And a man that can read the word of God. Yes, you want that man to vote. I mean, that's why they set up the American government like a Presbyterian church. They didn't want it like the Romanist church where you have a dictator at the top, a pope. But no, you have people that elect their representatives, elder rule. That's what the U.S. Congress is. Obviously, you understand that. Um, uh, we call it a republic, representative of the public. But, but that generally is a democracy. The people are voting. But the Ulster Scots made it very clear that be careful. Democracy is not the answer. You, you can have this idea of people voting, but that'll never bring law and order. It is the gospel that brings law and order. Who was it? It was James Madison in America, the founding father, that said democracy is nothing more than two foxes and one rabbit voting on what they're going to have for dinner. Just because the majority says something is right. Oh, the majority today says homosexual marriage is right. No, that, that, that we do not define truth and righteousness and the resulting stability that comes from it by democracy as if it in itself, apart from the gospel, is the answer. In other words, politics is not the answer apart from the gospel. Now, politics flows from the gospel. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. The king by judgment establisheth the land. He that receiveth gifts or bribes overthroweth it. Proverbs is filled with that type of language, but it's the gospel first. Righteousness exalts a nation. That, that's the fifth commandment. That's what you're really dealing with, and you have to have the gospel. Leaders in America had to know Christ as Savior to run for office in the 17, 1787 and, and, and onward when the Constitution was signed. I think of the sixth commandment. I won't get through my whole message today, but that's okay. The sixth commandment, what is that? Thou shalt not kill. What is that touching on? How does it affect a society that knows the gospel? How does it? The very fact that you can come upon a motor vehicle accident on the street and take your phone and dial 999, and someone comes to help those people. Try that in Africa. And, and that, that, that's not a racial statement. Try that in Africa. Today, everybody's so touchy. You can't even mention another race. The culture of Africa is such that you will not see that type of thing. 
You will not see people coming to the rescue of someone that has a motor vehicle accident. Joanna Greer, my colleague, she's a nurse. And we, she gives me a medical kit. She has a medical kit. We come upon accidents all the time. Motor vehicle crashes, motorcycle crashes. People there don't know how to help people. They don't know how to stop someone from bleeding. They don't know how to get someone breathing again. We have these little things that you can put into someone's mouth and you pump their chest and very carefully because of age, you don't want to get AIDS, but you can blow into their mouth and get them breathing again. The other night I was in Ballymena. It was a health and safety class. I think it was for the Sunday school children, but they, we had dummies on the floor. We were pumping their chest and we were breathing into the dummy's mouth. And it was like an electronic thing and it could tell you whether you were doing it right. I mean, you lear I learned that in high school. In America, why? They don't learn that out there, why? Not because they're a lesser race, but because their culture has not been shaped by the gospel and what flows from the gospel, right? Paul says we don't make void the law through faith. No, we establish the law, and the sixth commandment is part of that. So your medical system, uh, was it Cotton Mather, the Puritan, that discussed the issue of germs and how germs spread? Well, that's part of the sixth commandment. That all flows from that, the, the need to preserve life. I've come across... Motor vehicle accidents. I remember once in Kenya, and the people were watching the person lying there dying. And another, uh, there, was another man, there was a minister, a preacher there, and he was standing there praying. And I said to him something I remember from years ago, hearing Dr. Paisley say, put feet to your prayers. And I said that to him, but man, put feet to your prayers. You can pray, but man, help the man. You don't just stand over a car crash and you pray for the man. That's not the Lord's will. You pray and you help him. The seventh commandment, what is that? I shall not commit adultery. What are we talking about? You're talking about the family structure. Now, you would have found that in Jerusalem because of the history of the gospel. Again, the Jews were apostate. That's true. They had drifted by the time Christ came. But there was still that history of the gospel. That's how Paul even knew the word of God under Gamaliel. They, they did not have the word of God. They made the word of God of none effect by their traditions. They were adding to the word of God. They were adding their supposed interpretations to the word of God, but they still knew the word of God. So at the end of the day, cultures that have had, again, the gospel, there's stability in the seventh commandment in regard to the family structure. You come into your society today, even into most churches, and I realize we're drifting. I realize the divorce rate is very high. I realize with Asher's Bakery, we're redefining marriage, or they're trying to do, do that and fight people that won't bake cakes that promote the sin of redefining marriage and sodomy. I understand all that, but yet there still is a common grace history in this nation. That's why the battle's actually being fought, because there's those that are trying to overturn what a nation was. But that flows from the gospel. You come into Africa. Come into nations that haven't had the gospel. Do you see the family structure? No, you don't. I look out today, I see man and woman. I see sometimes younger ones sitting next to them. I can safely make the assumption that's mom and dad. That's the children. I mean, I wouldn't be far off base if I said that. You come to Africa, it's not like that at all. Not at all. You see a man, you see a woman back here, you see children here. It's all scattered. Why? It's just the way they sit now. You come into the Sunday school class and you talk to the children. And you'll find that uh, want some kids that seem like they're together a lot, you ask them, are you brother and sister? They will invariably say, yes, but we have only the same ma, different pa. Or same pa, different ma. It's not a family structure. And that's because of that culture. Sometimes they define marriage their own way, polygamy. And that's in that society. And there's a lack of stability. 
And that's why the society is not stable. Our goal, is it to change society, make it stable? No. It is the gospel. But I'm going to make a point in conclusion. I'm just going to make a point, which is really the point of my message, that we need to be wise when we come into cultures that don't have the gospel. If think about, I'll skip the Eighth Commandment for one second, but the Ninth, what's the Ninth Commandment? Thou shalt not bear false witness. What are you dealing with? You're, you're dealing with your court system. Now you say, you think about going into the courts. You go into the courts in Liberia. You not get very far without giving a tip, or as they say, a tip, a, 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 a bribe to the judge. But really, we can't do that. Actually, your country is very, very strict for your citizens, including your British missionaries that go afar. Your parliament, I think it was in 2010, they passed the Bribery Act, and they said very plainly that you are not allowed as a, foreign, as, as a British citizen to go into a foreign country and give a bribe, but you are also not allowed to give a tip to a government official, a person in a position of authority, police officer, customs agent, judge, in an office building, not, not just in an office building, but then also in a government building, even a government bank, you're not allowed to give a tip. It's automatically, they classify it as a bribe. America's a lot looser. The Foreign Corrupt Practices Act of the U.S. Congress says you can't give a bribe, but you can give a, well, they call it a facilitating payment. Because you can't get anything done. You can't get a driver's license visa. We follow the British law because I don't believe in extortion. I don't put people running their own business in a government office where they won't give you a driver's license unless you give them money under the table. That's madness. Now, they have to be paid. Well, how are they paid? Well, yeah, you get an official government receipt, printed receipt. Yeah, that's fine. That's acceptable. And that's what your government says. It has to be an official receipt. But at the end of the day, there's a tremendous amount of bribery and dishonesty. The ninth commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. That's the culture and that's the mindset. You come to the eighth commandment. What is the eighth commandment? Well, the eighth commandment addresses the issue of stealing. But what does the eighth commandment really address if it talks about stealing? Well, it's, it talks about actually work and laboring. Paul said that to the, those in Ephesus who were from a background. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, they were from a background or a culture of um, maybe dishonesty. And he says, let him that stole steal no more, but let him labor, working with his hands the thing that is good. So uh, it's talking about a work ethic. If you've ever read the larger catechism, question 141, when it speaks about the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. What are the duties required in the eighth commandment? The duties required in the eighth commandment are a provident care and study to get wealth, to keep wealth. To, they say today, if you're wealthy, you're automatically evil. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible condemns a love of money, greed. But to get and to keep and to use wealth and to dispose of those things which are necessary for the sustentation of our nature. And it says a lawful calling and diligence in that calling, frugality. Well, that's, you know, you talk about Balamina people, the tight-fisted well. Thriftiness, but that, that, that was the Scots, I, I, that's the Ulster Scots. They believed in a work ethic, which is, as I read Deuteronomy 28, when it talks about being set on high, talks about your basket and your store and your storehouses and plenty of good. That flowed from the gospel. That was justification that when men got saved, whether they ate or drank, they began to do all for the glory of God. They, they also recognized that the preacher, the clergyman, wasn't the only one that had a vocation. They saw that the farmer also has a vocation. This was a new concept prior to the Reformation. They recognized that the preacher doesn't have a higher standing with God. He's 
in union with the same Christ I'm in union with as a teacher or a farmer. And so all men had the vocation of God. Granted, the preacher was a high calling. It just meant he was not to serve tables. He was to get his living from the preaching of the word, not muzzle the ox, as it were, you see. But yet all men had the call of God. But that was the eighth commandment and affected the way people lived. Now, I say in conclusion, when you think of the way Paul the apostle labored and what he said, to turn to Titus 1 if you would. Titus 1. And you read in Titus 1, Paul's warning to Titus about the culture, not the race, but the culture of the Cretans. Now, Paul says to Titus, I'll tell you the verse in just a second. It's Titus chapter 1. Paul says to Titus, now, Titus, I'm going to tell you something about the Cretans. And Paul says, I'm not going to tell them something. It's, I'm not going to tell you something about them that they don't say about themselves. The Cretans say this. They, they know this about themselves as a culture of people. And he's going to tell him as a missionary, Titus as a missionary, you've got to deal with them very, very strongly because of the cultural background they're from. Verse 12, Titus 1, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always, this marks their culture and society, they're always liars. That's the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. They're not an honest society. They can't, like the Ulster man could years ago, shake the man's hand and say, okay, that's an agreement. And you knew that man would hold to the agreement. Now they would shake the hand in dishonesty and be lying to you. Yes, I'll sell you that land for so much or whatever. Always liars. And then it says evil beasts. What does that mean, evil beasts? Well, what are beasts like? They, they, beasts in the wild, they're murderous. They rip people apart. I mean, you think, you come to Africa, down the street from our bookstore. This is very common. It's called mob justice. You take a person that was accused of stealing. Even little children on the street on their way home from school will pick up sticks and beat someone to death. In Africa, mob justice, when they see someone else doing it, they don't know anything of the evidence, whether that person's guilty of stealing, and they prosecute him right there on the street and kill him. Down the street from our bookstore, they took a tire, put it over someone's head, put petrol in it, lit it on fire, and the guy died there on the street. That's what they do. That's all throughout Africa. Evil beasts. What was the Ulster Scots? What did they say? When they came to set up the American court system, innocent until proven guilty, once they're found guilty, no cruel and unusual punishment. That was the exact statement of your forefathers. Why? The gospel, right? Evil beasts. Christians are always liars, evil beasts. And then he says slow bellies. What is that a reference to? Well, slow is a reference to work. Belly is a reference to food. And it reminds me of what Paul the apostle said. That him that stole, steal no more, but let him work, laboring with his hands. You're not to be eating someone else's bread. You're to eat your own bread. That was the church in Thessalonica. Do you remember that? We hear that there are some that are walking among you disorderly. He's talking to the Christians that had just gotten saved out of that pagan culture in Thessalonica. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We hear that there are some that are walking among you disorderly. They're busy bodies. They're not working at all. Now them that are such, we man and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a gospel issue. That with quietness they work and they eat their own bread, not somebody else's bread. Now that, that was a command of Paul. And of course, Titus, the same thing. You see it there. Once he gets done saying, the Christians are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Why is he telling Titus that? Because the next verse says, 13, Titus 1.13, This witness is true, Titus. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply. 
that they might be sound in the faith. What does this mean? It means that we have to be very, very wise when we go into a developing country that have not had the fruits and the blessings of the gospel. We have to make sure we don't assume they are like us, particularly in regard to the Eighth Commandment. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Thou shalt not steal. No, you eat your own bread. That, let him that stole steal no more. Let him work. Let him labor with his hands. You remember the Ulster Scots, uh, the history of Scotland, if you think about how they dealt with the poor, and this was the same in America. I got this from a book. There was a book written called uh, The Tragedy of American Compassion, talking about Western charity and giving. And the, 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 the book... Uh, described, well, for, first of all, it was a book that fell into the hands of George Bush, Bill Clinton, I think, read it, some other members of the U.S. Congress. And when they read it, it actually changed the American welfare system, you call it the dole, to workfare. In other words, there were the girls that were getting pregnant. They were single. They weren't married. They were in sin. The more children they had, the more money the government gave them. Madness. I mean, what, what is that? And when they read the book, these men changed it to a workfare system instead of just a welfare handout system. And what they read about was the Ulster Scots. And they read about Scotland, about men like Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s that labored in Glasgow and came and preached the gospel among the poor and did help the poor. The Bible doesn't say we should. You have this world's goods and you shut up your bowels of compassion. The love of God doesn't dwell in you, does it? No. Every man, according to his ability, gave relief in the early church. So Chalmers, they did that. They gave relief to the poor, but they were very, very careful. <laughs> And how they gave relief to the poor. They made it very clear that uh, if a person could work, uh, they wouldn't help them. Chalmers divided up Glasgow among his deacons. And as they preached, they helped. But they stopped their help when it came to those that could have worked. It actually says in the book, the open hand was not extended to all. The society that ruled that no profane or dissolute person or openly scandalous person could have any part or portion in the charity, in the help, the able-bodied could readily find jobs in a growing agricultural economy. And when they chose not to, it was considered perfectly appropriate to pressure them to change their minds. That's what it actually says, the way the Ulster Scots dealt with the poor. They were careful. Now, Paul was like that too. Remember, a widow who lost her husband, she couldn't be taken into the number unless she was a widow indeed. She had to be uh, below a certain age, because if she was below a certain age, or if, if she had to be above a certain age, because if she was below a certain age, she'll marry again. And of course, the Bible says if the widow have nephews or children or even a husband, let them learn first if she remarries to, to, to show piety or requite them at home, right? The name of God be not blasphemed. If a, a man provide not for his own, he's worse than an infidel. We're talking about in a growing agricultural economy. Uh, also, the widow had to have a, a good testimony. She had to be well reported of for good work. She's had to lodge strangers. She had to wash the saints' feet. And if she wasn't marked by those things, she couldn't get any charity from the church. Why do I say all that? Because we got this mindset today that comes from the UN, the United Nations, that defines for us poverty rather than, and charity rather than a, a biblical way. You're living in a day today of what, well, I would call it Marxism, but they kind of call it egalitarianism, the idea that everybody should be completely equal. Folks, everybody's not equal. God didn't give all of us the same brain. Some of people are smart. Some people are good with money. Some, it's just the way it is. Now, we're to be charitable. But the issue in these countries 
is not a lack of resources. It is that the gospel has not shaped their culture. And therefore you have to teach them. Slow bellies. Rebuke them sharply. If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. You've got to teach them that. Poverty is not defined by third world countries comparing themselves with Northern Ireland or Britain or America and saying, until we reach that level of wealth, we're poor. The biblical definition of poverty is someone that is unable to meet their needs of food and raiment, that which you're to be content with, 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world, a certain will carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, you're therewith to be content, for the love of money is the root of all evil. What is your food? What is it? It's your water. They can't get clean water. Yes, they can. You dig in the ground and you will get clean water. That the, God has made the earth a filter system. And you can dig and you get your water. Your, 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 your food. What is your food? What is food? Well, what you need is, is you need protein and you need carbohydrate. I was in, in the interior in Liberia and I said to a Liberian nurse, you see all these children, they got the big malnourished belly sticking out. Is that poverty? She says, no, it's ignorance. It's laziness. What do you mean? Well, it's their parents. Now, children can fit the definition of poverty if their parents don't care for them. Then we can help them because they're, they're just children. But you still, in helping a child, have to teach them if he's in an orphanage that this is not normal. This is not the family unit. You must grow up. You must get married. You must understand that you must provide for the household, all of that. But I asked the nurse about that. She says, no, they can grow protein in the ground and carb. Obviously, rice is carb, protein, beans. There's other types of things that grow that are protein. A balanced diet will solve much of that. At the end of the day, they say, well, this is poverty, poverty. No, 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 no. So you've got to teach people that they must work. And if a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And I say that, that's extremely important because we have to remember that the gospel shaped us. Righteousness establishes a nation and therefore uh, revivals the exception. We're living in a day of the norm. Where God has ordained means that you preach the word of God. To sinners, they come to Christ and they come out of that society and that culture that has not been shaped by the gospel like Athens as opposed to Jerusalem. And you must be wise and you must rebuke them sharply. And sadly, I think in many ways we have a completely wrong concept. We say, well, they're poor, automatically poor. and the, <laughs> Very few people. Africa's wealthier than America. I say that to the people in Liberia. It's wealthier than America. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, America, America, our farmland, we, we have a very short growing season. We, we have to beat the snow and the frost. So you've got to get your crops in the ground, you know, your seeds, and then you've got to, your farmers, I'm not, I grew up in the city, but I understand a little bit that you've got to harvest that before the snow comes, before it's all ruined and it all dies. Exactly. Africa, they can grow things year-round in many, in many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, right? Why is it that America and even Britain, why are we the breadbasket for the world? We don't have the best land. They do. We don't have diamonds. They do. We don't have gold. Gold rush days in America are over. They have all the gold in Africa. Why are they so poor? It's the gospel. You see, it's not an issue of resources. 
It's an issue of the founders and the way the Constitution was set up and checks and balances because men are sinful and government must be kept account of and corruption. And if a U.S. president is caught in corruption, it's an automatic impeachment. You say, we have corruption here and there were, they weren't spending right to, in the government in Northern Ireland. They were, you know, the money they were... Okay, true. But when you found out about it, the people in Ulster dealt with it. You go in, in Africa where they're stealing millions and millions of pounds and the government's there in Kenya. And what do you find? Well, no one even wants to recognize it. You recognize it when it happens here. That's because you're a gospel society. But at the end of the day, it takes great wisdom. And I would say, I didn't get to all I was going to say today. I'll say more tonight about Liberia and its history. But I would say that as we think upon laboring in countries like African countries, we need to remember righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And people that get saved out of a background and email you, perhaps, for money, always be conscious that we might have them under discipline based on 2 Thessalonians 3 because there's a job for them. And how many jobs have we provided for people? Of course, we have jobs. We have a bookstore. We have employees. And we pay them very, very well. <laughs> but you know how many of them we've had to fire because they did show up? I've said, you've got a great opportunity. It's like talking to a brick wall. At the end of the day, then, when they're out of money, because we've had to lay them off because they refuse to work, they're very good at getting on the email and writing over here and says, we have needs. People never think, hi, there's a session on the ground, missionary, and we, we have that person under discipline because they refuse to work. I we're defining poverty by the United Nations. It's a very important concept. The authority is the scripture. That verse in Titus that Paul saw fit to tell Titus this very thing. Titus, you need to know something about the Cretans. Their own prophets say this about them. Not their race, but their culture. They're always liars, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they might be sound in the faith. The faith is speaking about the gospel. And what flows from it, sanctifying grace. And I pray that God would give us wisdom as we labor as a church. You're missionaries too. You're sending us out. That we would all be wise as we labor in these foreign lands. Let's close our meeting with a word of prayer. We'll not have a final hymn. And then we'll be dismissed. Our Father in heaven, we thank thee for what the gospel has done in our land. And Lord, we're conscious like Israel was told. But we were not chosen because we were more in number or greater. We were the least. We were the smallest. Even, Lord, thou didst say to Israel that you could raise up stones to be children unto Abraham. Lord, we remember that it is of thy grace. And we think of thy word that tells us to whom much is given, much is required. We pray that we would have wisdom as we go out into the foreign lands to bring the gospel to heathen, people that are not from a civilized background that has been shaped in its culture by the gospel in regard to the commandments of thee. And Lord, help us to admonish the believers uh, to do what thou hast commanded them to do in their lives. Lord, help us to have greater wisdom. We ask today if there are any here that have never laid hold of Christ, that they might even recognize their own sin by the fact that their life has not changed. There are not the fruits of the gospel in their life and they need to be justified and to see that fruit as the evidence of their justifying faith. 
Dismiss us now with thy blessing. Bring us back tonight in thy fear, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.